a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Welcome back, everybody. Nathan Romas with you. And today, we're going to be talking about violence, extremism, a little bit of hate, and uh, probably most importantly, defining some of these things. And for that, in studio, I've got Dave Jones, the manager of applied research at the Organization for the Prevention of Violence. Dave has written and published on several topics from violent extremism to eco-fascist discourse within the violent far right, history of jihadism in Canada, and uh, maybe something we'll get into too is the overlap between military service and violent extremism. Some of Dave's, Dave's research has been funded by the Department of National Defense, Public Safety Canada, and the Canadian Network for Research on Terrorism, Security, and Society. Dave has lectured in front of several organizations and instructs on the RCMP's Counterterrorism Information Officer course, which is how I came across his work. And Dave holds a bachelor's and master's degree from the University of Alberta and is currently a law student at Osgoode Hall Law School. So welcome, Dave. Thanks so much for having me, Nathan. Um, and you traveled all this way just to be on the podcast. Exactly, yeah. Yes. Christmas, Christmas was an afterthought. It was yes. just to be here today. Yeah. <laughs> well, we appreciate you making time to come in here. Um, it's been minus 40, so it's a great time to visit. <laughs> My flight was only nine hours late, so. Was it? Yeah. I see there's a lot of delays right now. And man, I was actually thinking of taking a trip and uh, <laughs> yeah, totally disregarded that idea as soon as I saw the news. So um yeah, no, we appreciate you coming in. Uh, we're going to get into maybe, I'll say, like some heavier topics. Uh, but I've had a few guests on recently to talk about these things. And I think everybody's got some really interesting, I'll say, views. Because everybody that I've had on here kind of comes from a different background. Um, but everybody's added something that is, uh, I think, really relevant. And then, especially when it comes to defining these things. And we were talking just a bit before we started here about uh, how people are kind of uh, conflating definitions, misusing words. So it would be nice to kind of get some of that maybe squared away. Um, but where we usually start, if you could tell us about yourself and where little Dave comes from yeah. and uh, how you got to where you are today. Awesome, yeah, for sure. So I, uh, I was born and raised in Edmonton. Um, started university at the University of Alberta about a decade and a half ago now. Um, I guess my, my entry point into kind of looking at terrorism, violent extremism, uh, was shortly after I graduated, I got a job working for a firm based in Washington, D.C., uh, that worked in the national security space there. So we worked with clients from like Google to NATO, um, really more focused on the kind of like the abroad issues. Uh, so, you know, what kind of operating threats these organizations faced in East Africa, in the Middle East, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, that company really grew and succeeded to the point where they started getting a lot of like classified contracts. Uh, I wasn't an American, so I couldn't make that work. And oh. so I came back up to Canada um, and a professor from my undergrad at the U of A and I sort of launched the Organization for the Prevention of Violence based on some new money that came available from Public Safety Canada in 2017. Okay. A little bit sort of weird trivia is we actually signed our agreement with Public Safety to fund us um, the morning of September 30th, 2017. And then the truck attack in Edmonton was the afternoon or the evening 
of oh, the yeah. same day that we we signed our funding agreements. That was kind of a a weird coincidence. Um, Good timing. But, yeah, yeah. Good or bad <laughs> timing, I guess, depending on how you how you look at it. Well, so I'm gonna take you a little bit back. We'll go back to yeah, of uh, growing up in Edmonton. So, did you have any experience with, say, uh, I'll say, racism or hate? Or you come across any of that as a kid? Like, did you have some experiences that maybe led you into this being as a, an interest? No, it was, it was kind of weird. And I work with a bunch of people who have these kind of nice stories about, you know, uh, an old colleague of mine was in the Brussels airport when the bombs went <laughs> oh, off yeah. there. Uh, my boss's family's all from Northern Ireland, so remember those troubles. I don't really know. I, there's no kind of like event that got me particularly interested. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Edmonton's a pretty like safe, friendly place to grow up in. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I didn't, I didn't see or any experience anything like that growing up. Yeah. Um, I think it was just probably, you know, the interest in like what makes people do these sort of like these crazy things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like most people under the age of like 40, 9-11 was this kind of defining moment. Um, and just the question of like, why would somebody do that kind of motivated me to become interested in the topic. Okay. Well, were you a good student? It's okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they say you're in law school now. I imagine you've got some good grades, but um, yeah, well, so you kind of go through university, you got your bachelor's and that was in? In political science. Political science. Bachelor's, master's, yeah. Okay. So how do you, when you go through school and then you obtain these uh, degrees, how do you get hooked up with a U.S. company? It was, um, you know, I I think because for a few reasons, um, you know, terrorism, hate, extremism, et cetera, not big problems in Canada Mm. uh, the way they are in some other countries. And then there's just not a lot of money or research funding for these kind of topics. Um, no private sector interest in it really in Canada. And so you kind of have to almost look down to the States to, to find employment if you're into it. Mm-hmm. It's getting a little bit better now. Um, but like a good millennial, mm-hmm. I actually, I've, I've been following my, you know, my person was to become my boss for a long time on Twitter. Uh, he tweeted he was hiring one day and I was like, oh, may as well yeah. send in my resume and, and see what happens. And it, it worked out really well. So that was, that was nice. Oh, that's pretty cool. Like you never know um, just how people might kind of come back around in your life, or or you might come across them again, right? So, uh, so did you go down there on like a student visa? No, so I, I worked mostly from uh, from Vancouver. My then girlfriend, now fiance, I uh, was going to grad school in BC, mm-hmm. and so I would sort of I'd do some flying back and forth, and then I think I think I managed to like legally avoid all the visa issues with yeah. working in, in different places. <laughs> um, and you know, it was a little bit nicer to live on U.S. dollars in Canada than it was to. Oh, because yeah, you would have got paid yeah. there, right? It was paid very or, meagerly, but yeah, it was, it was uh, <laughs> the exchange rate was was helpful a little bit. Yeah. So, uh, when you were doing your political science degree, was there is there like a specialization or a focus within the degree that you can do? There's a little bit. Um, the University of Alberta, like the political science department, there is not super kind of like interested in what happens outside of Canada speaking generally. Mm. Uh, so most of the faculty kind of, you know, look at like political theory or look at Canadian politics. Okay. Um, there were a few professors there who did sort of international relations, which, you know, we kind of think terrorism is kind of a, a subset of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there wasn't sort of a, U of A isn't known for that necessarily. Okay. Um, it just kind of happened that my boss was an adjunct faculty member there. Um, and he was kind of the one person who wrote a lot about terrorism at the U of A. Um, and so that's kind of how we initially got hooked up okay well and i guess being on bc there's probably maybe closer to like criminal organizations but you wouldn't even hear about terrorism hey yeah, not yeah. a big thing there even um so from that point you said yeah 2017 comes around and you managed to get some funding to kind of create the organization so 
Can you talk a bit about that, like how that kind of fleshed out? Yeah, sure. So it was a, uh, tw- I think the 2015 election, it was a campaign promise um, that the then, I guess, you know, running for running to, to lead Canada, um, mm-hmm. the Liberal Party made in their platform to fund this sort of field of work called countering violent extremism or CVE as I'll refer to it because it's a little less mouthy yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, moving forward. And this is really kind of a field that developed mostly in the UK and then in Western Europe, um, primarily in the UK after the 7-7 bombings in 2005. Um, what they started to see is that there were all these people that, you know, the security services or the police were looking at um, who were demonstrating some sort of concerning behavior, but nothing that had necessarily become criminal yet. Um, and so they didn't really have anything to do with these people. So the idea was not unlike you might do with like a gang intervention program or something dealing with like intimate partner violence, was try to do something to get these people off the path they were on. Mm-hmm. And I think in, in a way, actually, the like the truck attack in Edmonton was the sort of perfect example of this, um, where Abdullahi Sharif had been looked at by the RCMP, I think, three or four years before yeah. he carried out that attack. Yeah. But at that point in time, it was just, you know, it's not illegal to have videos, that kind of thing. And so the file just kind of sat on a desk. Um, and what we really wanted to do and what I think we're doing now is giving somewhere for like those people to end up that isn't just kind of this sort of like holding pattern mm-hmm. um, and trying to sort of do something to get them off that path to violence. So it's more about the prevention than being reactive to yeah, it. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, it, how, why would it take Canada so long to get to that point when you consider like 9-11 happened and uh, that changed a lot of things for people, even in Canada, the way uh, we were kind of doing law enforcement or intelligence but why is it like almost a decade later, decade and a half before they start kind of being like, well, maybe we should be preventative or proactive, I should say, in these measures? Yeah, I think I think it was, you know, generally in Canada, there's a there's very few books written about terrorism in Canada. Um, but one of them, I think it's called like Terror in the Peaceable Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes Canada is sort of referred to as like the Peaceable Kingdom. And I think that that kind of in a lot of ways informed our response or lack thereof. Um, it's just we always looked at terrorism as something that happens elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and even even you know to the present now, there's, I think there's kind of this lack of desire or lack of interest in understanding why, you know, a Canadian going somewhere else to engage in terrorism, yeah, I think is just as bad as somebody doing it here because it's still a Canadian harming someone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there just wasn't a lot of interest in it. And you know, especially as compared to Western Europe as compared to the UK, um, and even compared to the US, like just, it's still a relatively low occurrence event here. Mm-hmm. Um, which maybe just means we're doing a really good job, uh, or maybe just means that you know it doesn't happen as much here. I think I feel like uh, a huge, huge part of that is because we have nobody on our borders, right? We just have the U.S., so it's easier for us to not worry about a lot of things. Like nobody's running into our country. Like if you look at Europe, right? You got people just jumping on rafts and they can float across. Yeah, <laughs> you got people flooding the land borders we don't have that here. So it, it eliminates a ton of problems. So I feel like that was probably the biggest part. The book you're talking about too, is that Phil Gursky's? No, it's, um, it was this kind of edited volume uh, done by actually my old boss, David Gartenstein Ross and some oh, other okay. people um, published it. But I think, you know, to your point about borders and kind of like that question mm-hmm. of why, um, I think it's also just like the Canadian approach to what it means to be Canadian. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is kind of getting to some of these questions of nationalism and sort of like how inviting and welcoming and most people are very happy here yeah. to be Canadian. Um, you look at France, you look at the UK, sort of their experiences with immigration and resettlement and people 
feeling like they can't access being British or access being French. Mm-hmm. I don't think people really come to Canada for the most part and feel like it's like being Canadian is something they can't be a part of. Yeah. In the same way that, you know, it's it's hard for say like immigrants from North Africa to be to feel French. Yeah. I don't think that that story is true in Canada. And I think that's part of the reason why we don't see a lot of like, you know, terrorism. Okay. Um, and that's true on the far right too. It's just like, it's not kind of the idea of like white supremacy isn't kind of a thing in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same way, it, you know, it resonates in certain places in Western Europe. Well, I agree with you. Uh, I, <laughs> recent media headlines might disagree with you. <laughs> but uh, we're definitely going to get into nationalism and a few of the other topics. Uh, just kind of staying on the organization right now, though, I w- was kind of wondering, uh, how do you guys do your work? And like, how's the how's that broken down? So can you talk about the structure? Sure, yeah. So we're, we'll sort of have kind of two wings to the organization. Um, the first one is kind of the research and the training. So that's how I met you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we sit and write things and occasionally someone asks us to come present what we've written yeah. about. Um, so that's kind of where I spend most of my time. And then the other wing of the organization um, is something called the Evolve program. And that looks a lot like a kind of a traditional crime prevention program, um, delivering sort of wraparound services, I think is the, the term that lots of people use. Mm. And I know EPS kind of has equivalent programs. Yeah. Um, so, you know, putting a team of like social workers, uh, psychologists, and what probably makes the program a little bit unique is mentors. So that's either people who have been involved with the far right in some ways, um, religious counselors, that kind of thing, to kind of deal with the ideological dimension that people have. But in practice, like a lot of people who end up becoming involved in a terrorist group or a hate or whatever, um, the same kind of like needs and behavioral profiles that you might see with people who are involved in other things appears a lot here too. Mm-hmm. There's just this really sort of unique ideological aspect um, that needs to be addressed in some way. And that's kind of like where we differentiate ourselves from other types of this kind of like human service or social work type programming. Is it like um, de-radicalizing people? That phrase is used a lot and it's kind of like contentious in the field um, because it is kind of hard to change people's beliefs. Mm -hmm. But simultaneously, like I think that there's, there's kind of been this break in the field of CVE where you have people who say like, you need to not talk about ideology at all and ideology doesn't matter. um, And, prefer to just kind of like focus on getting people to desist from criminality, which is like a really good objective. Um, but then conversely, it if you don't talk about the ideology, if you don't try to address the ideology, like it's a bit of an open question about whether or not like that yeah. person is going to re-engage at some point in time. That to me sounds like a very huge component yeah, of it. exactly. <laughs> and I think it's, it's part of the reason is people, there hasn't, it's a relatively new field. I mean, it's, It's only really been around for 15-ish years now. So we're still in some ways trying to figure out what works. Um, But part of the problem is a lot of the early programs are really focused on de-radicalization. A lot of them happened in the Middle East, for example. So like Saudi had this one where like they really just bring everybody convicted of terrorism offense into a classroom and like lecture at them for like eight hours a day. Um, And like that didn't really work, but that's not surprising that it didn't work. So it's kind of trying to find a way to like promote ideological change without like sitting someone in the classroom for eight hours a day. I think the biggest thing I've ever seen and just from doing police work is just having regular everyday experiences with say a person that maybe you don't like for whatever reasons and kind of seeing like uh, they're a human too. Yeah, exactly. Probably the most effective from what I've seen. Um, But I would think, yeah, you would definitely, it's like any issue. It's like uh, you kind of got to address the elephant in the room and if you only think a certain way, well, people just telling you don't do that or, you know, that's not nice. 
yeah, you're not going to change. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and how are you guys mainly funded? So we, uh, our primary source of funding is through Public Safety Canada, uh, something called the Community Resilience Fund. And then we also are supported by the city of Edmonton sort of as a part of their funding package with Reach Edmonton. Okay. Is this stuff that you have to apply for every year or every few years? Usually they, I think the city funds in four-year terms um, and the federal mm. government funds in like five-year terms. So it's kind of like every couple of years. We're like writing a new project to yeah. try to keep it going. And this is um, one thing I've always wondered too about like a lot of these groups is do you have to show any kind of progress or or uh, results, certain type of results? Like, what do you show them to say like, hey, keep us funded? I think, and it kind of goes back to the, that, what I mentioned earlier, about no one is quite 100% sure how to do it yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think, I think a lot of programs, Canada is reasonably good for it, but a lot of programs are kind of opaque in what they're doing. Um, in a way, I think some people kind of work in the field kind of like think they're in an episode of Homeland. Um, <laughs> yeah. like, like you kind of, you know, you start dealing with terrorism and then you think you're a spy or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's kind of this, this desire to sort of keep things like secretive and, and opaque. Uh, I think what I'm quite proud of that we did is actually publish some reports publicly on at least kind of like how many people were seeing what ideologies are motivating them, what kind of services we're doing. Um, I don't think we, I don't know if we have the data 100% yet to be like, this really worked. Yeah. Um, but just starting to show, you know, numbers and what kind of services people are getting. Um, okay. Are they satisfied with it? Like, yeah, it's kind of just building a little bit of evidence about what might work and, and trying to be open and share it. I guess like, um, not for your organization, but when you look at like homelessness and uh, services that a lot of the people get down in the core in downtown Edmonton, and the amount of money that gets put into it. And then it seems like right now, it seems like things just keep getting worse. And based on what a lot of the politicians say, like uh, during COVID, the homelessness has like doubled or tripled. And, you know, there's people uh, getting, their tents are getting lit on fire or they're blowing up. Um, it's like, well, where's all the money going? And, and what are the results I mean, there's there's millions, if not a billion dollars, going into this stuff, like the, from the province side too. Uh, so it's, I always wondered that, like, how do they measure how effective our dollars are? So, yeah, I think then that's that's sort of a problem that a lot of um, crime prevention programs or any sort of like social mm-hmm. service is really trying to figure out how to do. Because a lot of times, and this is certainly true of the work we do at the OPV too, is we're trying to measure like a non-occurrence. Um, so you yeah. know, somebody comes through the program and then doesn't do an act of terrorism or some type of crime. Um, and it's, so it's really hard to actually get a sense of like, is that effective or not? Yes. One way you can kind of look at it is um, for people who are sort of a little bit higher on the kind of like threat level, um, if we're able to sort of get someone to a point where the police don't need to feel like they kind of need to keep that file open on them mm-hmm. um, and maybe, you know, like stop watching them, that kind of thing, like over time gets really expensive very quickly. Like, I think that we, we can show cost savings in that way. Yeah. But again, we're really just kind of trying to gesture at whether or not it's cost effective. Yeah. Um, but I think that that's sort of a problem in the whole field is just like, how do you show value for your work? Well, and that's, you know, that's something that uh, working on the gang team, we are out there and we know we've been told by informants, we've been told by, uh, I'll say the bad guys that aren't informants too, uh, that we've prevented a uh, homicide, right? Like, hey, you were here on this night. Like, there were, someone was about to do the, whatever it is, but then you guys walked in, and there's no way to measure that. So it gets to be like, well, you know, what kind of stats are we showing to back up the dollars we want to get? 
So I kind of understand where you're coming from with that. Yeah. Uh, one thing I wanted to make sure we covered too is, so you're the manager of applied research. Can you talk a bit about that function itself? And then what do you do on the day-to-day? Certainly. So I, uh, <laughs> I basically just wanted to make a you know, fancy title yeah. for myself. Um, <laughs> but what we, what we do try to do, and I think is a bit of a problem in, in the field, and this is, I think, true of like a lot of kind of like, you know, criminologists who study policing and all that kind of thing is like, make sure that like the research we do is actually useful to someone. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of why we try to like sneak the applied word in there. <laughs> yeah. um, we're just really trying to like, you know, if we write a report, trying to make it actionable for somebody, um, whether that's, you know, social workers who can do something or like members of law enforcement who can do something, just trying to make sure that whenever we're writing something, we're not just sort of putting in a book or like a journal that no mm-hmm. one will read, um, that we're trying to do something that can actually translate into like making a meaningful impact for somebody who has to deal with it in their day-to-day work. Well, this podcast hopefully will get listened to by a few hundred people, so it won't be totally useless. I'm very applied. I'm good. I'm good to go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so maybe we'll kind of get into some of these topics about uh, um, like hate and some of the uh, extremism. Do you want to kind of start on nationalism since we kind of mentioned that already? Yeah, sure. So I mean, I think that's probably a good place to start. Yeah. Um, um, well, in in the email correspondence we had like a long time ago. You kind of mentioned identity politics then. I think that's only kind of skyrocketed since, and it's still a big part of what's going on out there. Identity politics, nationalism. Can you explain uh, what nationalism is and then how you kind of broke it down before? So there was the ethno and the civic. Can you talk a bit about those and maybe define some of that? Sure, yeah. So I I mean, I think um, when we talk about nationalism, like there's a a bit, Probably everyone who has a sense of what nationalism is has like a different sense of the term. Yes. Um, and, you know, so I think my definition is probably also not going to be like the, the correct definition necessarily. Um, but the way I've kind of always thought about it is like nationalism functions at its best level as a kind of like patriotism, like a pride in your country. Mm-hmm. Um, it can also be an acknowledgement your country's made mistakes in the past, um, but you can still have pride in what your country stands for and the kind of values that it, that all the citizens should try to live up to it in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just kind of you know, its highest level, like a 30,000 foot definition of nationalism. And I think that when we, part of the sort of the problem with these terms is like, as I mentioned, they always mean different things to different people. Um, and I think where nationalism starts to get kind of like dangerous historically um, is when you start to come to define nationalism in terms of like ethno-nationalism. Mm-hmm. So where what it means to be a member of a country is that you have to be part of like the dominant ethnicity in that country. Um, and, you know, whether it was Western Europe for most of its history, um, China now, like when we see that what it means to be a part of a nation is to be a member of a certain ethnicity, yeah. that almost always leads to bad things. Yeah. Um, but what I think that civic nationalism, and by that I mean the sort of sense of like, just being Canadian means things like, you know, respecting each other, respect for the rule of law, that kind of stuff. That's a really good way that we can all come together as a country around these kind of these shared beliefs in democracy and freedom and liberty and caring for each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's nothing intrinsically bad about, about that type of nationalism. Yeah. And I think it also can provide a good sort of like unifying um, baseline for everybody in a, a world where maybe we don't seem as willing to be unified yeah. in any way anymore. <laughs> well, uh, uh, one of the things I was kind of thinking of on that, those, along those lines was the difference between like multicultural versus the melting pot theory. And uh, I see this quite a bit where it's like, you know, Canada really describes itself as multicultural. So when people come over, they can 
basically just maintain, you know, all your beliefs, your traditions, your way of life to some degree, as long as it doesn't, you know, meet a criminal threshold. Um, but then it's like, like kind of like you're saying, like, well, but does that not uh, keep people in their own group uh, when they talk about like ethno-nationalism? So if I just come here from wherever it is, whether it's Europe or Africa or Asia, and I, you know, I came here for a certain reason, but what's that reason? And then if I'm just coming here to only maintain, you know, 100% the way of life, the way things were done, wherever I'm from, does that not kind of prop up that ethno part of the nationalism? So would melting pot not be a better idea? I think it's, I mean, I think that kind of like that, that sort of multiculturalism um, means different things and there's different policies in every country it's, mm -hmm. it's been pursued in. And I, uh, I think that probably in Canada, it seems to have worked pretty well. Because, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think in part of why I think multiculturalism has worked very effectively in Canada is it's always kind of been this sort of core ethos of Canada. Um, I mean, like we're a nation of immigrants. Everyone came here at some point in time yeah. um, from elsewhere, except for the indigenous people, of course. And um, everyone kind of just made a, like found a way to make it work. Mm -hmm. um, and for some reason, my, my boss wrote a book on this about multiculturalism in Canada. Uh, so maybe he would be a better suited to answer this than me. But I think that just so there's something about Canadian multiculturalism that hasn't led to the kind of like the problems um, of settlement and integration that we've seen in Western Europe, seen in the UK. Mm -hmm. Like things in Canada have worked pretty well. And I think it's just because what it means to be Canadian is not sort of defined in exclusive terms. Um, so, you know, for example, people want to come here because they want to be subject to a rule of law, that mm -hmm. everybody is subject to the same rule of laws so and different laws for different people. Um, and that's like a pretty easy thing that everyone can buy into and isn't hard to kind of like integrate into your life yeah. and, and model, right? Yeah, it seems like a pretty, I'll say, simple thing to kind of grasp and yeah. come in. Uh, so when we talk about uh, ethno-nationalism, would, I had it written here, would white nationalism, anti-authority stuff, is that kind of falling into that then? Yeah, I think like, you know, when when you start to kind of, and you see this in some of the kind of, um, I will, I'll probably use the term like ideologically motivated violent extremism instead mm. of right-wing extremism. Um, just kind of think it captures things more effectively. And that's sort of yeah. the government of Canada's new terminology. Um, but when you start to see some of these IMVE groups or sort of what we might call right-wing groups, you know, defining what it means to be Canadian as like being a white Canadian, that's where things start to get dangerous. Um, and is also just sort of historically silly because like up until the 50s, um, you know, like, Polish immigrants to Canada, Ukrainian immigrants to Canada like, weren't considered white. Yeah. And like, it just, it, it's a silly way of defining things, right? I, that's one thing I've always found kind of, yeah, like you're saying, it's it's like, well, there's white nationalism or, or these white supremacist groups. It's like, but even, and this is the same, even in minority groups, uh, there's lots of bickering among people within those own groups. Yeah, it's like, yeah. you're from this side of the line and I'm from here, or you're from that tribe and I'm from here. So everybody's just hating on everybody, yeah. <laughs> regardless of where you're from, even in and amongst like the Europeans all coming over here, right? Irish had it for a while, the Polish had it for a while, the Germans had it for a while during the wars. Like, uh, yeah, so everybody seemed to had an issue at one point or another. Yeah, and this is where I think like some of the kind of like the identity group stuff is just sort of silly. Mm -hmm. um, as you're trying to collapse all this diversity within like a group of people. Um, into like a very sort of superficial understanding and lumping of them all together. Yeah. And like we all have different perspectives and different, you know, beefs with other people. Like it's, yeah. yeah. Well, and um, especially with like uh, nowadays you see 
the BIPOC acronym. And one of the things I always found interesting about those is just like black, right? First letter. But it's like, they're not, you know, people also call them African-Americans. It's like, but they're not all from there. There's black people from Canada. There's black people from the Caribbean, South America. Like they come from all over and they don't all necessarily identify that way or agree with whatever you're saying. So yeah, just lumping people together. Not a good idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, that, that that's kind of like what has made Canada pretty effective, I think, coming back to that sort of question like multiculturalism, is it just like we have always appreciated, like, I think the diversity that exists within Canada. Yeah. Um, and we haven't really felt like a need to sort of like group people like that before necessarily. And I think it's just good to avoid. I think, it, it, you know, well, not too far from now, maybe a couple decades, Everyone's just going to be some shade of brown, yeah. <laughs> with the way the world's mixing and stuff, um, so people just kind of kind of accept it. Uh, what uh, moving from that stuff a bit, because we weren't going to focus too much on just hate, uh, but if we look at hate versus terrorism, um, can you kind of explain? And you had a good explanation a couple of years ago. See if you can redo it. <laughs> the difference between hate and terrorism. Sure. So I mean, I, I think, and, and hopefully this is in the definition that you liked, um, <laughs> I think in a way, although it's there's some problems with it, but you can kind of imagine it a little bit as existing along a sort of spectrum. Mm. Um, it's sort of hate as like the lower end of the spectrum, and then terrorism is kind of the ultimate manifestation of that. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, in Canada, we understand hate as like discriminating against somebody um, based on like sort of charter-protected yeah. um, characteristic. And oftentimes we see terrorism is sort of motivated by you know, moving from hate to like very violent disdain or dehumanization of people based on some type of charter protected uh, characteristic. But I mean, in, in practice, it gets pretty complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think maybe, you know, Phil or somebody, one of your previous guests may have touched on this in some way, where if we start to move from sort of academic definition and the ease with which we can maybe distinguish between those two um, into sort of what exists in the criminal code, like it gets very hazy about where we draw the line at what's hate and what's terrorism. It seems like it's more the uh, the act. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. you can kind of have the thoughts you want and stuff outside of like trying to motivate people to your cause. Um, but even that's like super hard to prove. Yeah. <laughs> and then, but the, obviously the act itself is you know pretty easy to see for people. Yeah. And then, I mean, where it gets complicated is, you know, if I, go out in some sort of like gang beating mm-hmm. um, based on, you know, my hatred for X or Y group. Um, at what point does that cease to be a hate crime and start to be terrorism? Like it's a very kind of hazy line between those two. Yeah. Well, that's the one thing I don't really like about how they throw this out in the media right now is as soon as somebody does anything, like a guy threw a punch at some lady, says a racist word while he's doing it, instantly is labeled, it's, uh, we believe this is a hate crime. We're investigating as a hate crime. It's like, okay, are we jumping the gun here? Are we trying to fan flames? Are we uh, sensationalizing certain things just so people are clicking on it more? I think it's it's it kind of slowly pushes us toward that identity politic stuff, and and can cause a lot of uh, fear among one group, but then uh, you cause a lot of anger among the other group that you're kind of labeling like, hey, there's all these people attacking these other people. So you're causing fear and you're causing anger. Um, so yeah, using the definitions kind of got to be careful. 
Yeah, I mean, it's hard because I think, you know, numerically in Canada, certainly most of, you know, if you look at the SASCAN data, for instance, most of the kind of things coded as hate crimes are like, you know, simple assaults or mischief. Mm -hmm. um, and where hate kind of comes in is like at the sort of sentencing phase. Yeah. Um, and so the question of like, well, that should be kind of investigated as a hate crime or is that determination for a judge to make? Mm -hmm. um, but what is clear is like, you know, that hate crimes do have this really big effect on communities. Um, and I think it, it sort of is a unique like set of crimes in that way where, you know, one victim can often result in kind of victimization of a community. Yeah. And I think that we've, you know, we've seen that in Alberta, um, for instance, you know, black Muslim women in Edmonton um, after like a, a couple of months, like seven or eight assaults mm -hmm. um, based on that unique group or targeting that unique group um, obviously caused a lot of fear. Yeah. And I think that it, it's always delicate and you have to kind of carefully balance trying to, you know, sort of responsibly um, raise awareness and kind of how you can just be more aware of your surroundings, kind of try to prevent this stuff without having people become like really terrified to go out. Yeah. Because it, it thankfully is still like, a, you know, across the board, like a low occurrence event. Yeah. Well, and on the, those topics specifically, so if it's another minority group that commits that act and, and says the hateful language while they're doing it, it's not put in the media that it's, whatever uh, uh, indigenous person who did it or another black person who did it. But if it's a white person, they're very quick to say white people are beating up on Muslim people or white people are beating up on black people. And that's where I'm saying is the, the you got to look at both groups and say, well, th this is creating fear in and amongst the black community. But are you now labeling all white people as racists or um, ethno-nationalists? And are you creating anger among people on that side of things? Because they're like, well, I'm not that. You know, that's just one crazy person who isn't drawing anybody to their cause. They went out and said stupid stuff and like deal with them and, and their case, but don't label us as that. So that's one of the, maybe a bone to pick I have with media <laughs> and putting stuff out there. Yeah, I mean, and I think too, um, I know like Johnny Wakefield, the crime reporter for Edmonton Journal, did like mm -hmm. I think a really long, thoughtful piece um, because I think like a lot of those those incidents in particular targeting black Muslim women like were indigenous indigenous accused. Mm -hmm. um, he did like a really long thoughtful piece on a topic that is very hard to write on. Yes, uh, and so I think I give him a lot of credit for that. But it definitely, I think that, you know, like most things, like media can kind of frame however they want to sort of fit a certain objective. Yeah, and it is this kind of question. This is not just true of hate, but I think of media reporting generally um, of whether you know like driving clicks and reads. Uh, at the cost of kind of social cohesion mm -hmm. is is a good thing or not. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's also, you know, sort of very cautious that, well, we can kind of like, I guess, quibble with how media frames these sort of incidents. Um, even if it doesn't get reported in the media, there are these sort of broader community repercussions yeah. that can be really bad for for people who, you know, become scared to use transit. Um, although maybe everybody is scared to use transit now. <laughs> I'd say that's probably an <laughs> yeah, accurate statement. Yeah. <laughs> um, you were mentioning to me that you guys were uh, running a project that's funded by the Provincial Justice Ministry. Can you talk a bit about this project and and maybe some outcomes or what you're kind of measuring, I guess? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, you know, one of the big questions is, you know, you can look at the, like, the hate crime stats from 2015 to 2021. Um, you see this general upward trend. You see spikes in early 2017, uh, spikes in 2020. And so, so I, I think, you know, we, we can be confident that like many types of crime, the number of hate crimes is probably increasing. Um, but what's really difficult to figure out is, is it just the number of reported hate crimes that's increasing? Mm -hmm. 
or is it the actual number of crimes that are increasing? Yeah. Um, and that's a pretty open question. I don't think that's unique um, when it comes to just hate crime reporting. I think that's probably a question for every type of crime that isn't homicide. It's a yeah. question of like, is crime going up or are we just seeing more people report it? Um, and that's really what we're trying to figure out with this study yeah. is looking at sort of like what people think about it. Um, and then equally importantly, trying to do kind of like a more statistically rigorous sample of Albertans and what kind of their views are on what's motivating hate. Mm -hmm. And then compare that to sort of a sample of like affected communities and kind of what their perceptions are of hate. One thing, and uh, I don't know if this is in the study. I don't, I haven't seen the study, but is, is there a way to measure if people are saying there's a hate crime, but there's no actual hate crime? Are people claiming to be a victim of something that either didn't actually happen or maybe it happened, but not to the extent they said it did. And the reason I ask that is because uh, back when the Me Too movement was happening, um, there was a lot of, a lot of, uh, I'll say, unfounded or um, not 100% true claims that were coming out. So you have people coming in and making a lot of different claims, but it, it, it really delegitimizes the true victims. Like there is hate crimes out there, 100%. But when you get people, you know, everybody coming in out of the woodwork and everybody claims, you know, I've been a victim uh, of this, that, or the other thing. Well, you kind of got to say, well, where is the evidence? How do we prove that's true? So is there a way to measure that? I think it's hard. I think, you know, both of us are talking about kind of sexual assaults or hate crimes, like the kind of the increased social awareness and kind of like, I guess, understanding of what that means and then how common or it is or isn't, mm -hmm. um, you know, for every kind of like one false report, even if these movements probably drive five or six times out of sort of people feeling comfortable to come forward. Yeah. So I think it, it's important that we don't, you know, sort of say just because there might be a couple of false reports that kind of, you know, throws the whole, the whole movement into question. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, but, but definitely I think there is a question of like, how do we gain evidence? And what's really hard when we're talking about hate is there's a whole bunch of stuff that might be motivated by hate or sort of discrimination um, that isn't necessarily criminal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we have kind of like hate and bias incidents and hate or bias crimes. Um, and I think there is kind of a tendency or an instinct to sort of say, well, you know, the incidents maybe don't matter as much because they're not criminal. Mm. Um, and we shouldn't be criminalizing people for those incidents. But then the flip side of that, of course, is like, I could walk around and like follow someone around all day and like yell slurs at them. And like, I may or may not be committing a crime. That's like just a bad thing to do and bad for society. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's, I think that we were probably capturing a lot of like the, the data I suspect on kind of, you know, assaults motivated, mischief, that kind of thing, graffiti. But it's kind of that other stuff and like, it's not criminals, it's not really policing matter necessarily, but like, it's bad for society if people are like actively antagonistic yeah. towards each other. Well, cops wish there was a ticket for this, but there's no <laughs> ticket or charge for just being an ass. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, and, and that's kind of, maybe that's where I was kind of going with is like, you know, at what point is someone just a jerk and we're like, that's morally bad that we don't value those things here um, as opposed to it now being a crime and we're counting it for some sort of statistics. Yeah. So. And I think that's, you know, and that's kind of like where there's sort of two unique sets of data in Canada that deal with hate. You have like the, the StatsCan stuff, which is like police reported data. Mm -hmm. um, there's something called the GSS. I think it's the General Social Survey. Okay. And the, the, like the rate of hate incidents reported in that is like, 25 times higher uh, oh, really? than police reported crime. And there's kind of like, well, like mm -hmm. the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. 
Um, and I think pointing at either one of them as like the true answer is probably a little bit disingenuous. Um, and so it's tough to kind of figure out like what is actually happening. Yeah. And so we're, you know, we're hoping with this survey, for instance, kind of constrain where we're looking a little bit more, not looking nationally, just looking at Alberta, maybe trying to get a better sense. Yeah. Um, but the other thing we're trying to do with the survey is like really find out, um, particularly from affected communities, although it's hard to like survey people um, generally. And then when you try to sort of drill down and deeper and deeper, it gets harder and harder to find people willing to answer the survey questions. Mm -hmm. Is, you know, when you're the victim of like, whether it's a hate incident or a hate crime, um, like what effect does it actually have on you? Yeah. You know, on your commute, um, on your, you know, your willingness to like use public spaces, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's really where we saw in the aftermath in the community, for instance, in, in Edmonton, um, of like all those assaults, I think like 65% of which were on ETS property. Like <laughs> that had a really clear negative effect on like a yeah. significant portion of Edmontonians' willingness to use a service that we should all be able to access. <laughs> like how do we get this to a point where people can all coexist together, right? And, and share the same areas. Um, so maybe kind of moving a little bit on to extremism. And this might touch a bit on hate because the motivations for extremism kind of come down to political, religious, and ideological. Would hate be along the same lines? So hate is, it's kind of, it's tough because like that's sort of um, where we got that political, religious, and ideological um, is in the co-definition of terrorism, which kind of rightfully or wrongly is what we're also like working from now. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, you know, you can imagine like to the extent that it's clearly defined, which I don't think it is, that probably if you hate somebody again, sort of hate somebody based on one of those like charter-protected characteristics. Mm. Um, the underlying motivation underneath that hate might be political, might be religious, or might be this vague ideological thing, which kind of means like anything else. Yeah. Um, so you can kind of think of like, in some ways, the sort of the political, religious, ideological sort of underlay or motivate the hate. And then that hate can either manifest as like a hate crime or move towards terrorism. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's, it's tough because these definitions are like really obviously like interlinked, yes. but are tough to kind of like pull apart and define neatly. Within Canada, what is um, maybe the biggest threat in the hate space? And then we'll talk about extremism. I think hate space, it's mostly, I, I was looking at the new statistics um, for this year that just came out. And I, I think it's still primarily people targeted because of their religion. Um, so Jewish Canadians are the most common victim, and then you have Muslim Canadians, and then I think it's Black Canadians. It's sort of religion is still the leader, mm -hmm. and then you have kind of like race or ethnicity is like the second most common category. Yeah. Um, but again, these statistics are just like obviously vastly kind of like underreported and I guess unevenly reported. Yeah. So for instance, I, I think the number is 77, but in 2021 there were like 77 incidents targeting Indigenous people across Canada because of hate. And it's just like that number 77 is like obviously not true. Mm. Um, and so is it not true by a factor of three or is it not true by a factor of 10? No one knows. Yeah. Um, but the data is just like bad. Um, it's essentially the, the best of the worst that we have to go with. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. It, I find that interesting that it's still like religion would be the number one, especially considering just... Um, it seems like when you watch uh, pop, you know, you see pop culture and, and just media and and different things like religion almost plays a much smaller part in, I'd say, Western society now than anything. And then with current narratives, race is the biggest thing. So I thought I honestly thought that would have been the number one. Like, 
by far. So it's kind of surprising. Yeah, I mean, and I think some of it is, you know, like like what motivates hate and sort of how it manifests across Canada is going to look different. And so I know, for instance, like one of the things is, you know, if there's like a swastika drawn somewhere, um, it's like pretty easy to do that. Mm-hmm. And then that I think will obviously be sort of interpreted and often reported and perhaps coded as like a hate crime targeting the Jewish community, yeah. um, which it may or may not be. But there there are these sort of these weird intricacies in the data that were kind of tough to figure out. Yeah. Um, but like a lot of it is graffiti. Um, and it just people seem to gravitate to like the swastika graffiti for some reason. Yeah, it's, I guess it's just burned into people's brains. Yeah, exactly. There's Coca Cola and and that. Yeah, and Not then you know Coke's it's bad. like you know what <laughs> what hate looks like in Montreal and sort of who it targets and who's most likely to perpetrate it. It's going to be different than Edmonton, different than Thunder Bay, different mm-hmm. than Vancouver, that kind of thing. And so it's also just kind of hard to look at that nation, like that national data, and tell a local story in a way that kind of like matters and makes sense. Yeah, and well, and bringing things closer to home obviously is more interesting to the people that live there. And it's like, how do you extrapolate this big giant picture into something more local? How do you apply that? Especially if, I mean, every community is different, right? The demographics are different. So is it applicable? Yeah. But um, what you were just saying there kind of reminds me of uh, being in Ottawa for the uh, convoy. Uh, uh, I was on the police side things, <laughs> but uh, they had, I remember seeing on the news, people walking around with a uh, Canadian flag and there were swastikas drawn on it. And this is what I'm talking about. Like when people see something or they hear something and it's like, did that happen? Or are you misinterpreting things or did it not happen altogether? Well, people are walking around with the swastika on the Canadian flag. And I'd see two spins on that. One was uh, some of the media was saying like, that's uh, uh, those people are saying like Trudeau and the government are Nazis and, and fascists. And then the flip side was saying, well, look at, they're all Nazis here and they say Canada should be a Nazi state. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, what's true? What actually happened? And it's just like a, a giant world of craziness. <laughs> um, but moving into more of the extremism stuff, uh, and this is where you're talking about, you're a bit more comfortable on this. Um, do we see, is there much of this in Canada? Because it doesn't seem like it's a huge issue here. Maybe it's more like people going to be foreign fighters, but what what's kind of the landscape right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in some ways we're talking about, you know, sort of jihadism um, or the kind of white nationalist stuff. Canada is kind of interesting way in sort of, in, for two reasons, I think. One is it's always like, there's always this strong cross-border Canada-US pull. Um, and then also just kind of Canadians going elsewhere to do things. Um, but then the the kind of thing that I think we have missed for a long time, and there's actually just a Canadian arrested in Toronto this week or last week, um, with like a Bitcoin fundraiser for ISIS strategy. Oh, really? Um, but there's kind of been a long history of like Canadians sort of doing logistical or fundraising stuff um, for acts of terrorism abroad. So, or, or kind of playing this kind of like ideological or like facilitation role. So stuff that maybe, if it's criminal at all, which some of it isn't, um, is hard to investigate, hard to prove. There's no violence happening domestically, so it kind of falls down the priority list a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is kind of this, you know, long, and not proud is the wrong word, but like this long history of sort of Canadians involved in terrorism in some yeah. way, um, but with a tendency to sort of go and do it abroad, whether that's trying to go down to the States, you know, you had the Millennium Bomber, Ahmed Hussam, um, cross from Vancouver into the U.S., before that, I think there were actually two Canadians from Toronto who tried to blow up the New York City subway system. 
Mm. Um, and then, you know, you've sort of seen foreign fighters on the white nationalist side. You've seen Canadians going down to the States to kind of go to like these training camps um, and then engaging in plots down there. So for whatever reason, um, Canadians have sort of demonstrated this sort of preference for like going abroad or elsewhere to do the violence. Do you, and uh, this is super maybe random idea, but would it be harder for, maybe they're more comfortable going abroad and, and doing these acts than at home because maybe they still have some sort of identity, identifying, uh, I don't even know what the word would be, Maybe they just identify with the population here more, right? Like you still come home. It's still home. You might have family here and different things. So you're like, uh, I don't want to do terrorist acts here, but I'm okay doing them over there. Is that kind of like a maybe a dividing line? Yeah, I, I think I think there's a there's a bit of that. I mean, and it is in in some ways it's kind of like a testament to like this idea of Canada as a place for everyone. It's like yeah. even the people who hate and want to engage in violence, like. I can't do that here. Like, yeah. come on. Um, but then, you know, obviously with the foreign fighters, there's this sort of like broader, you know, ISIS didn't have like a province and in, in Canada they could go join. So, you know, they mm-hmm. kind of had to go abroad. Yeah. Um, and then I think just, you know, the accessibility, for instance, of like both members and kind of committed people, um, ease with which you can get sort of access to firearms, that kind of thing in the States. If you're on the kind of white nationalist side, like, well, I'm going to go down there and Mm-hmm. And link up with those people because um, they can get things that we can't in Canada. It's more fun, um, <laughs> that kind of thing. You know, more fun down there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do so if somebody comes over or comes back over from whatever country they're in, and they say they're getting schooled over there, or they've been committing terrorist acts, and then we bring them back, who does the uh, the process of reintegrating them? If that's kind of the decision that's made, like, hey, we want to put this person back into everyday society, the de-radicalizing, for lack of a better term, but who would do that here? Yeah, so I mean, I think, you know, the big question right now is um, what's going to happen? I think it's 55 Canadians who are currently in northeastern Syria um, and who, it's alleged, uh, traveled there to, you know, join and support ISIS in some way. Um, Of those 50-some, it's like, I think, 35 are kids. Um, Wow. Like, 10 are women and five are men. Like it's really, it's mostly children and it's mostly children who were born there um, and are like, you know, four or five years old. And Mm. so obviously like did nothing wrong and have been living in this terrible condition. And so, you know, I think it's hopefully if there's a decision to kind of bring everyone back, it happens at once because it's just like this trickle I think is hard for everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, But thus far what's happened is there's kind of been two approaches taken. Sometimes people have been charged or sometimes it's just kind of this like this peace bond approach. Um, and so it'll ultimately probably rely on what evidence that the government can sort of present and it's what's obtained. And then, of course, what's admissible because a lot of this is kind of battlefield evidence yeah. um, that's collected in ways that like may or may not sort of satisfy courts in Canada. Yeah. Um, but after that, I think what's, what's happening so far is some of these people being put on peace bonds with the expectation they participate in a program like the Evolve um, at the OPV, but in sort of their respective cities. So I think that's happened for both one of the women who came back to Montreal and one of the women who came back to um, Vancouver. It has been some kind of like de-radicalization or disengagement programming that's been a condition of their peace bond. Do you find that, mo- like, have you ever found that somebody has gone back to that way of life after going through any of these programs? I think there's, I think in Canada, to the extent that I sort of like have a sense of like, you know, the national data, I don't know if it's happened a ton, but it's also just because we're talking about, you know, small numbers in Canada mm-hmm. still. 
Um, but it, it's happened from time to time. I mean, of course, like the fisherman's fisherman's wharf, the guy who like got killed with the harpoon. I never heard about oh, this. So there's in, this was in in <laughs> London. Somebody who went through one of these programs um, was then at a like a luncheon for all the graduates of this deradicalization program. Came out of the bathroom. I think he like taped knives to his hands um, and started stabbing his like former mentors. And then they were at like this restaurant that had like a harpoon on the wall, and someone like, harpooned him. As this whole like big, big plot. So there definitely is some recidivism, um, but I think it's probably at a level that it's. Most of the research, I think, tends to suggest it's lower than other types of crime. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you're always you're never going to have a hundred percent success, successful program to do anything. Um, and so, recidivism is a risk, but it seems to be a lower risk mm-hmm. um, than other things. And partially, it's because of the kind of like the political nature, religious nature of, of this type of crime. Is you know whether you're looking at like the FLQ in Quebec um, or you know ISIS's state in in Iraq and Syria. If, you know, the FLQ is around and kidnapping people, you're doing that, and then you go to prison and come out 10 years later, the FLQ's gone, or ISIS doesn't have its state anymore. It's like, well, I guess that's done. Like, what else am I going to do now? Yeah, yeah. And so, because this type of crime is a little bit unique, and that it's not necessarily, you know, to settle a grievance with somebody or another group, or you're not doing it to, like, enrich yourself, Mm -hmm. if the sort of the political motivation to do it falls away, what are you going to do, Right. Like how we can just count on people being lazy. Too. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I come out of the jail. It's like, oh, someone's not doing all the stuff for me and setting it all up. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And there's, <laughs> there's actually this, this great story. Um, I think it was somebody who interviewed somebody who's fighting for the IRA. Um, and, you know, when he was like younger, he'd go out and like drink with his friends. And then they would go like set up a roadside bomb and try to kill the British. And then he got a girlfriend. And so he couldn't go out on, you know, Saturday nights anymore. He'd only go out on Fridays. And then he had a kid. And he was like, well, like now I'm really too busy to do this. And Jeez. so, you know, whether it's the political landscape changes or you just get like too busy yeah. um, to do this sort of, you know, the side hustle of like terrorism, um, <laughs> most people eventually do kind of grow out of it. Wow. What we see for fewer people growing out of is that kind of like ideological inspirational role. Yeah. Um, and there's people in Canada on both sort of the white nationalist side and the jihadist side who have been like really prominent supporters of these movements, mm-hmm. um, have counseled lots of people to if not explicitly engage in violence, like really suggested that's what they should do or never charged and have been doing it for like 30 years. Wow. Um, so, well, and when we're kind of talking about like all these different groups uh, and a bit earlier, we talked about like left versus right. But do you think, is that um, is that a good way to really define a lot of this stuff? Because the one thing I, and I had this question long ago was most of what we see is like, left-wing activism but then everybody says we got to be concerned about right-wing extremism or terrorism or whatever they want to call it so what's kind of the that landscape when we're talking about left versus right and who's who's out there you know actually bringing people to their cause and committing violent acts i mean i think so you know certainly in in canada um and certainly probably true globally or at least you know north america Western Europe, um, in the 70s, we saw a lot of kind of like left-wing terrorism, um, mostly funded or supported by the USSR. Mm. Um, so, you know, we kind of had like Weather Underground in the States, that kind of thing. Um, the Red Brigades or Biden-Meinhof gang. In Europe, a lot of kidnappings, assassinations, bombings of like factories, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of that actually fell away when the Soviet Union sort of both stopped being the kind of inspiration that it was to them at the time, yeah. but also fell away when they stopped kind of supporting or financing these activities. 
But now, you know, post 9-11, because um, 9-11 kind of like throws all the graphs off. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in North America and in the United States, there's been something like, going to make up a number, but the, the proportions will be roughly accurate. 500 people killed in acts of terrorism since 9-11. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 10 or 15 of them were killed by left-wing extremists. 100 or so were killed by jihadists, and the rest were killed by white nationalists or anti-authority type. Mm. Um, so in terms of actually like acts of terrorism, that especially those that involve death, um, all, like disproportionately, it's kind of white nationalist stuff. Really? Um, if you look in Canada, you have the London attack last summer, the summer previous, Quebec City, um, what else come, comes to mind? Some anti-authority stuff, so whether that's like um, Justin Bork, in Moncton, that sort of thing. Like a lot of it is white nationalist or kind of anti-authority stuff. Maybe in the criminal activism band, you kind of imagine terrorism at the sort of the top of the pyramid. Mm-hmm. If you fall down, it's like criminal activism or just like mass movement activism. Because white nationalism isn't popular, it's hard to get a lot of people out to a rally. Yeah. In the same way, you might be able to get people out to a rally for you know a pipeline or whatever. Um, but most of that rallying is activism that we may disagree with. And then a smaller subset is criminal activity, which, of course, should be investigated and prosecuted. Mm-hmm. But if we're talking about actually, you know, homicides motivated by people who have hateful ideologies or are trying to engage in acts of terrorism, it's pretty much exclusively white nationalists or anti-authority types. I wonder how much of that is against police. A I ton, would imagine a ton. most yeah, of it. Yeah. Like, especially in the States. Um, I was looking at the some of their stats, and I think it was three. It's over 300 cops have been shot this year. It's like... Well, I imagine most of that's probably the anti-authority side of things. Um, and then on the the more on the left side of things, I think uh, it's it's just bigger groups, whereas you see on the right side of things, it's like the lone wolf, the lone actor who seems to go out and do a lot of this stuff. I don't really see like a big group from the right side of things? Would that yeah. be kind of accurate to I think say? That, that's generally accurate. I think what, what groups can often do too, particularly if they have kind of like legal activism bent to them or even kind of just like lower level criminality bent is kind of actively police and try to sort of restrain their more extreme members mm. um, from engaging in actual acts of violence. So some of the good research on lone actor terrorism that looks across ideologies has found like a really common indicator of somebody that we can look at after they engage in an act is they were affiliated with a group and then they got kicked out of the group for being too extreme mm-hmm. and then they went and engaged in lone act of violence on their own. So um, they then become a right. Yeah, and so <laughs> I, you know, I think like with um, with kind of a, some of the, the left-wing groups, is like the group is actually like a protective factor in a way where the group is able to exert some control over its members and be like, you know, we're going to let you maybe smash the windows, yeah. but like you can't build a bomb, yeah. um, that kind of thing. And it's because like white nationalists aren't, many of them, mm-hmm. um, it's hard for them to get kind of a big group and go out and rally. But this has always been, um, on the terrorism side too, is kind of this trade-off that I think people who investigate this phase is it's a lot easier to investigate groups mm-hmm. and groups can be a lot more like deadly. And so if you're a terrorist, you're always kind of trying to face this trade-off of do I try to find five people, one of whom almost certainly works for the FBI, if I do my plot, <laughs> yeah. or do I go and do it on my own? If I have five people, it might be bigger or more fantastic. Um, but if I do it on my own, there's like a hundred percent chance that I can go through with it. Where did it, you know, maybe, you know, this answer, but where do most of these groups communicate? Like, what's the big thing now? I think it's, it's, you know, any kind of like the, the myriad of like online encrypted, um, platforms. So Telegram was popular, less so now. 
Um, there's still stuff, you know, on like signal groups, that kind of thing. But there's just, there's so many different platforms you can take advantage of now. But it must mostly be like refer a friend. Yeah. There's no yeah. way you're just putting up ads saying like, come join my cause. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, maybe mostly. you have a website and people can look at it, but. And sometimes there's, you know, there's kind of like sort of fringe or radical communities that maybe aren't like super, super violent. Um, but are kind of like right adjacent to that. Mm -hmm. And so if you're in those spaces, that's kind of where you can find, you know, like join my group chat to like do whatever. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, there's been some kind of example of that. The guy who was arrested for the TATP and like the firearms um, in Spruce Grove or Sony Plain, mm -hmm. he was kind of on like 4chan's like gun community, which like is kind of like weird and wacky and like kind of radical, but not necessarily violent. But then he sort of, met people there and went to go do something else kind of with a subgroup of that. Yeah. Um, can you comment a bit on uh, like the January 6th, the stuff in the U.S. at the Capitol? Do you have like any insight into that? And the reason I ask is because uh, I'm never a person who's like a sole source. You know, I get my news from one thing. I like to see it from as many aspects as possible. Most of the videos that I've seen, like if you can watch cameras inside the place and stuff, there's a lot of people going in and like, it almost seemed like at one door of the Capitol, a lot of people were like smacking each other with bats and doing different things. But then all the other doors of the cops were like, yeah, you can come in, just don't destroy the place. And there was like a lot of people leading the thing, the guy with the fur hat and everything. <laughs> he was yelling at people, and this is on video, saying like, yeah, don't smash this and don't do that. But he kind of got used as like the the head of the snake for this whole yeah. plan. And I was like, man, this is the most confusing thing. Like, what the hell are people supposed to know is true? What are they supposed to think? So is that really, is that an insurrection? Is that a real, is it a good term for that? Or Yeah, I mean, I think um, I ha I've sort of purposefully tried to avoid reading too much about the January yeah. 6th stuff, just to keep myself sane. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I think, you know, what we saw was a bunch of different things happening. Um, they again, kind of like all lumped together into one. Yes. And so, you know, you had tens of thousands of people who were there, a small number of whom maybe were trying to do something, um, whether that was legally an insurrection or not, it's like a question for somebody else. Mm. Um, but it, I mean, it was definitely like, the, I think it's the biggest investigation in the FBI's history, um, the most charges they've ever laid in relation to kind of like one event. Mm -hmm. um, and there were a lot of people who were there who were kind of just like, milling about a lot of people there who were had, you know, maybe malicious intent to do something. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely been interesting to watch it unfold. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, the the line that, you know, democracy was in peril that day is maybe a little bit of a, an overstatement. Yeah. But again, yeah. I've kind of purposely tried to like avoid. Well, and even, you know, you look at the convoy stuff. Um, I was involved in that from the public safety unit that we have here from that aspect. And then the stuff we heard about Coots um, where they arrested the, the it was four people. Yeah, they arrested so. four for the plot to uh, kill police. And it's like, it, yeah, there's always, there's this massive group. There's a handful of people that are just doing all the criminality. And then there's some people kind of in between, but the majority of people are literally milling around. Yeah. Just kind of looking like cattle to a degree. <laughs> just follow the group, go where people go, chant whatever they're chanting. Um, whether they even know why they're there. But actually, and that, that's one thing I've seen a lot of, uh, having been in a lot of the protests and different things at the ledge grounds here is, it's it's like, as soon as one group is protesting, you get like 10 others just trying to bite off of that success. 
and uh, I think it was the yellow, uh, yellow vest one. Yeah, and there was like them, and then there was this other group, and this other group, and like one group's comp- uh, talking about indigenous rights, then another one's talking about labor rights, and another one's talking about some other thing. It's like none of you're gonna get anything. You're all screaming at each other, screaming over one another. So, yeah, it seems like things kind of gotten a little out of hand, like, yeah. a little crazy now. And again, everyone kind of like they see, you know, a social movement of like any type. Um, and a lot of people kind of think this is like their moment to latch on for like their little niche interest. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, everyone will join them because they kind of have this this shared goal. Whatever, if the LFS had a goal is another question. Yeah. Um, but then unsuccessfully try to go and, you know, recruit a bunch of people out of it to join, you know, their own little group for whatever reason. Um, and I mean, I think that's certainly true of some of the kind of more like radical criminally type groups in, in Edmonton that kind of did some of the hate stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like the Wolves of Odin and then like Soldiers of Odin and then Sons of Odin and then like yeah. that kind of thing. They were always going out to all these other protests. They tried it again with the lockdown stuff, trying to like recruit more members into the group and it like largely didn't succeed. Yeah, no. Um, and again, because, you know, it kind of goes back to this point, like most Canadians are really disinterested mm-hmm. um, in like living their lives steeped in hating X or Y group, um, which is, good mm-hmm. but yeah these these kind of big movements have been people try to co-opt them or you know find their own ways to make use of them it like largely doesn't work yeah well and uh, we're getting just over an hour i said i wouldn't keep you too too long uh last uh, couple questions i have for you just what is what do you think is the best thing that could be done to combat uh hate or extremism or maybe it's one and the same or would you say they're separate ways? i think i think a lot of you know and you, you touched on this earlier um like on a kind of social level, just like there's a pretty good amount of research that's on something called like contact theory, which is basically what you just said, like meet somebody who thinks a different thing than you or believes something different than you and get to know the person. And there's like a lot of research that suggests that's actually pretty effective mm-hmm. um, at reducing kind of like the baseline discriminatory beliefs people might have. Um, so I think, you know, looking for opportunities to like have intercultural discussions, that kind of thing yeah. is at like a high social level, a really effective way to just like make us all understand and appreciate each other more. Um, don't actually know if it has an effect on like terrorism per se, or on somebody's actually going to go out and like commit like a heat motivated assault. Mm-hmm. Because you can imagine that once you're at that point, like you don't really have an interest in meeting somebody yeah. different than you. Um, but you know, at a kind of like a, a younger age or a kind of social level, that seems to be the best thing. One of the things that I'm, I'm conscious of, and I think that sometimes has happened in Europe, is when we start to view like, you know, all our social policy should be focused on preventing hate or all our social policy should be focused on preventing terrorism. It kind of just like makes it into a bigger problem than it may actually be. Um, and so, you know, I think having programs selfishly uh, funded like the OPV is, yeah. is a good way to kind of deal with the people who are actually have already engaged or like demonstrated a clear intent to engage in acts of hate and acts of terrorism, kind of deal with them individually yeah. is helpful. But at a social level, I think it's like mostly just like be nice to each other, meet people who think differently than you. Yeah. Um, is all we really need to do mm-hmm. because it's not so huge and crushing a problem that it needs to like consume all of our attention. Yeah. And you know what? I would uh, 100% agree. I think what people get lost in is they they find their, it's either their idea, so they want to see it through to the end, yeah. like, but it's not working. So uh, people need to be able to adapt, but also maybe it's working now but a year from now, it's not, or something's changed in there. And you start to see like, it's not as a, a effective as it used to be. Maybe we need to change something. So I think that's the hardest part for a lot of these the, uh, programs. Like 
whether that's even on like um, addictions issues and whether we should have safe injection sites or should we focus more on rehabbing people, you know, that are already using, like I say it's 60%, this 40, that you say it's 70 and 30 and like, there's a million ways to skin the cat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, uh, last question for you, uh, is how can people best follow your work? Where should they connect with you? Um, where can they find you? Sure. So I guess um, on LinkedIn, we have our website. I'll start with our website. Yeah. Um, preventviolence.ca is a good way to kind of read some of our publications, um, which includes like a wide range of stuff, um, including some of that data that I talked about earlier on kind of like who's in the program and um, what are they like kind of services are they getting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I am occasionally on Twitter at Dave Jonesy and I don't tweet as much as I used to. But uh, I that's can't a good stand one. Twitter. I. <laughs> Yeah, I just put it on there for the podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> LinkedIn, you were saying too. Yeah, yeah. yeah I guess there's a couple Dave Joneses on LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Well, uh, I'll put those up in the episode description when we get this up. Awesome. But uh, is there anything that we didn't cover that? Maybe no, we I mean, I, I think I don't know if it makes editing difficult or not. Uh, but if you wanted to touch on like the military thing, but that could be like super long. So I don't know if we just want to. Hey, I, if you got a few more minutes, I'll, I'll gladly talk yeah, about sure, it. Yeah, sure. Uh, one of the things that when you put this in your response to my stuff, uh, it made me think about how we have all these military groups that are involved with the uh, uh, OMGs, the outlaw motorcycle gangs. So obviously not necessarily extremism maybe, but um, probably along the same lines. It's like, you know, you're fighting for your country, but now you're going on to these fringe yeah. areas. So. Yeah, what, uh, what, in what space have you seen that kind of coming up? Yeah, sure. So so basically, and actually, this, this kind of in some ways was a bit of a reaction to January 6th, although we had the idea before. Mm-hmm. Um, but I saw, you know, there's a lot of reporting in Canada, again, going back to how media sometimes can like twist things um, on, you know, like all these Canadian soldiers are joining the far right. And I was like, I don't know if that's like true. Um, and talking and, like uh, those groups, like the base or, yeah, or whatever. Yeah, that kind yeah. of thing. And then, you know, like... Um, there's a guy in BC who was a Canadian Ranger who, like, I think was part of the three percenters or whatever. Mm. Um, there's a lot of reporting on this, and like, it's obviously a problem, but it's kind of a question of like, how big of a problem is it? And then perhaps more interestingly, like, the question of why. Yeah. Because I think sometimes there's a bit of like an academic instinct to just like view the military as this kind of like bad thing yeah. or, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, and then, well, you know, this is bad and this is bad. Like, of course, it's no surprise. Like, you know, people are doing these two bad things. Like yeah. they, they kind of go hand in hand. Uh, and I was kind of like, ah, I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, and so what we wanted to do, and got some funding to do, was to actually talk to people who in some way had been in the military and then been in the far right and ask them about like what was going on there. Um, and I think we got some reasonably interesting findings um, that basically suggested, unsurprisingly, like, A, it's not an incredibly common thing um, which should just be obvious on the face of it. Yeah. But also that sort of the the reason why people do those two things is very different for each person. And the sequencing of those things matters a lot. And so, you know, really the, the story that I think is the most interesting to tell was that for a lot of people we spoke with who were in the movement before they joined the military and who, when they joined the military, did so because they wanted to get, you know, weapons training or whatever, ended up finding the military played that disengagement and de-radicalization role for them, yeah. which makes sense, but it's definitely not sort of like the dominant narrative that's talked about 
when we talk about the military and the far right. Well, it's kind of like, again, getting back to the nationalism. You get in the military and they're teaching you to be proud of your country. You're fighting for a cause. Yeah. You're fighting for people here and a way of life. So yeah, it puts those hooks in you to kind of keep you maybe grounded in reality to some degree. So uh, Mubin talks a bit about that too. Like yeah. Having those hooks and it's like going from uh, normal, like what would people would consider normal everyday life and then you just get these certain ideas in you and you go off in this uh, other world of experiences. But he got, was able to get out of it because he had those um, those things to base him back in in society here. So, uh, And that's just it. You know, like a lot of people who we talked about who kind of fit that, that, I guess, chronology of being in the movement before joining the military. Like, you know, they would talk about how, you know, when they were in the movement, there was this idea of, like, the white race being so great, but, like, all their friends were drug addicts um, and just kind of, like, losers and, like, sat around who drank all day mm-hmm. and then joined the military. And they were like, oh, well, actually, like, these guys are into fitness and, like, there's lots of, bunch of different people there, different cultures, different religions. Like, I'm into fitness. Like, they're not doing drugs all day. Like, maybe just, like, this yeah. can sort of replace it. Yeah. And then with that, like you said, the kind of, like, the military ethos is sort of one that is not encouraging of hate or discrimination. Yeah. And so just like a different way to kind of like shape your identity and build it in a positive way. Yeah. And well, and I think like you're saying, a lot of people might have kind of a negative view or some people, not a lot, but some people might have a negative view of military. It's like uh, a lot of what they do is humanitarian work or helping in natural disasters. Like it's, especially the Canadian military, they're not really going and just being the more offensive side of things anywhere. So yeah, it's uh, and it's a good place to go and um, get you out of your mom's basement. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, <laughs> and, and, and you know, sort of the, the discussion earlier about nationalism too, it's been interesting that the Canadian forces for a long time, and it's, it's been this way in, in Nordic countries and I think in the States for much longer than in Canada, mm-hmm. um, but allowing like permanent residents to join. It used to be restricted to just citizens. Mm-hmm. And the CAF has had a big recruiting crisis for several years. And then last year, they started letting in people who were just permanent residents apply. And it was like, I think 70% of their applicants since then have been people who weren't citizens yet, but who were permanent residents. Yeah. Which says two things, like A, probably should have happened a long time ago, and B, that like people who are coming to Canada like believe in the idea of Canada and want to find ways to serve. So would it and, be- like, what a better way to do it than join the military. Like a tool to integrate them faster into- it, I don't think it gives you any like citizenship advantage, just like people want to like do something for their new country, no, I, right? I mean, like they're going to be- see themselves as Canadian faster, right? Like, it's like, hey, we're all here. We're all part of this cause. And now you're fighting for this way of life. Yeah. And I think like, that's kind of what the U.S. military has done for like, quite a long time. Um, mm. Imperfectly, certainly. But like, I think that that's kind of like been a way for people to kind of like get a sense of being American. Yeah. Was just join the military. and Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I think that was a good place to kind of wrap it. I think we got through most of this stuff. We'll definitely have to have you back on. I'm interested to hear um, when you do get the results of the project that you were running, uh, kind of where that lands and, yeah, and the scope of things. In anything coming up in the future for you, writing any books? You just trying to get through law school now. Just trying to get through law school. How long do you have left? <laughs> uh, two and a half years. Like, like I literally just started oh, in September, so it's. Uh, I do not miss school. Yeah, <laughs> this job, this job, and like. Uh, certain units that you're in it's like yeah it's continuous learning and you still got to take courses but yeah full-time school is not fun (laughs) that's a great thing about UPS right it's like you know 30 different jobs in one career kind of thing yeah yeah I'll just stay here I'm good (laughs) (laughs) 
Cool. Well, um, I want to say thanks for coming on. And awesome. uh, I'm glad you could get in here uh, over the holidays. Yeah, no, thanks so much for making the time, Nathan.